Japan is a country with a deep history of self-reliance, demonstrating time and again that for a small island nation lacking in natural resources, they can not only hold their own, but come to dominate militarily, economically, and culturally. By the 1980s, Japan's prowess in the economy had become apparent, with the manufacturing sector commanding global automotive and electronics markets and the acquisition of large quantities of foreign assets in real estate, production facilities, and government debt. Something changed catastrophically, however, in the 1990s, and Japan's decades-long boom came to an undeniable halt. At the center of it all, contends economist Richard Werner, was the Bank of Japan and its restructuring of the economy towards a more speculative and consumer-driven one via the intentional imposition of a financial crisis. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to have All right, hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. This is probably going to be um, our last episode before Thanksgiving, so hopefully uh, you all can enjoy a as much as possible a time where you're uh, you're taking some time off to just enjoy uh, and hopefully with some people that you care about and who care about you. We we did get a couple donations on the blockchain. Just wanted to thank those uh, those folks. Uh, and uh, tonight I'm joined by uh, Nick and Hans, uh, and we are going to be talking about Japan. Uh, and I have been uh, wanting to do a show on Japan for a long time. Uh, it's something that I have some knowledge of. Uh, and Hans and I were uh, both reading this book called Princess of the Yen, written by this uh, economist uh, by the name of Richard uh, Werner. Uh, he's a German fellow who's actually worked and lived in Japan for probably over 20 years, uh, and he has a, a very somewhat unorthodox take on how the Japanese economy works and how central banks in general work, and we might get into some of the interesting things that happened to him when he tried to publish some of his his thoughts on this matter. Uh, but uh, the Japanese society, Japanese economy, uh, is an interesting one to me in particular because it it almost surpassed the United States in the 80s in terms of economic output, and it did surpass the United States in terms of overall uh, market valuation if you include the real estate and stock markets together. Uh, and the real estate itself actually out, out, uh, outdid the entire United States by, I think, a magnitude of uh, six for a country that is 26 times smaller. So there was something something extraordinary going on there. It uh has been compared to China's rise, but I think there's some unique characteristics of it that uh, China has not experienced. Uh, and I think China did learn from some of the mistakes that happened uh, from Japan. But the Japanese, going back, I would say, to probably 1850, 
give or give or take was when their their entry into the industrialized world happened when the Americans went over there and forced the emperor to open up the country, which had previously been isolationist for centuries. Uh, they actually only allowed in uh, a few foreigners in certain places in the country, uh, in particular in Nagasaki, they allowed the Dutch to come in uh, for a few trading uh, exchanges. But beyond that, it was it was strictly uh, emperor, um, samurai, uh, daimyo uh, lands with all these castles and a, really a medieval feudal society that had not changed for centuries and they wanted it that way uh, and that was that was reversed uh, in the Meiji era when the emperor saw the great uh, technological differences between the Japanese and the Americans in particular who had come in and forced these uh, Japanese to open up at uh, gunpoint uh, and he led a rapid industrialization and modernization campaign that really took the country through a a really shock therapy of just getting rid of a lot of their traditions and importing from various parts of the world uh, the mainly European but also somewhat American ways of doing things. Uh, they actually imported some of the German school systems. So if you ever watch a Japanese anime, the Sailor Moon series or anything like that, where the, the the school outfits are these like sailor outfits. That's actually from Germany. Uh, the uh, the economic model was was brought over from Germany, but also from from Britain. Uh, the American scientific management models were were studied, uh, and it, they had tremendous success. They were actually able to defeat Russia in uh, a, a somewhat significant war. Uh, that Teddy Roosevelt brokered the peace deal to, and this is in the early 1900s. Uh, and during the 20s and 30s, the military uh, took uh, took control, and they led a heavy industry uh, drive to actually uh, get rid of some of the textile industries that had actually boosted the economy uh, from an export po uh, point of view that the Japanese actually modeled after the, the British uh, textile industry, which used to be... Uh, the center of most of the world's, or at least most of the colonies' textiles back in the, the 19th century. The Japanese modeled that initially uh, for their economy. And then when the, the military took over, they imposed a more heavy industry focus. Uh, so textiles being light industry, relatively speaking, with people running looms and uh, people sewing things together. Heavy industry is, as it implies, it's it's more... Uh, involving uh, high intensive energy, uh, heavy objects, things like uh, steel making, uh, shipbuilding, things that build actually um, infrastructure and also enable a mechanized army to go out and conquer. And so the goals of the military were to do this, build up the, the economy to support the militarization and uh, expansion of the Japanese empire into Manchuria, uh, into Southeast Asia. And then this eventually angered the uh in their view the imperialists or the european imperialists um who also were vying for control in china uh and places like that and then the americans boycotted the or they sanctioned the japanese trade so they wouldn't sell them oil and so pearl harbor happened and then uh the japanese economy went from a somewhat organized one to a really organized one where they had to engage in this war effort and then the war ended, the atomic bombs were dropped, 
and the occupation happened. And this, interestingly enough, was actually when the Japanese bureaucrats really became critical to how things work there because the occupation government imposed a tremendous number of rules and they also wanted to break up a lot of the older families that had run the country in um, collectively they were called the Zaibatsu uh, and Batsu is sort of this uh, uh, term that's applied to several words in Japanese uh, culture and language uh, it's basically just a conglomeration but uh, Zai is uh, it can mean money and things like that um, and in that sense there were these wealthy families that had a lot of uh, ownership stakes of the uh, commanding heights of the economy in Japan. And they were broken up because they were viewed as dangerous uh, oligarchic forces that could be, that could resist uh, the modernization and democratization efforts of the American occupation. Uh, And so they used to own things like the, uh, what became the Mitsubishi group, uh, but actually it was uh, broken up into three parts. And the symbol of Mitsubishi is actually three stars. That's what the the word actually means uh, like three stars. And so those are the three companies that were later, later then re- recombined in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and this actually happened throughout several other places. But what, uh, what I was saying earlier about the bureaucrats' role was that they, uh, they started this very intensive uh, industrial policy of having these uh, almost like five-year pseudo-communistic plans of what the the country was going to be focused on. Uh, so we're going to focus on the chemical industry now. We're going to do shipbuilding. We're going to invest in steel. Uh, and it, again, it came a lot from how war planning is done. Uh, and instead of making tanks and airplanes, they were making consumer goods. And this really drove the growth in the Japanese economy. And it, it sort of inspired by the 70s and 80s, a lot of other countries to study them because their annual growth rates were were sometimes even more than 10% a year, which we've seen with China now. Uh, but until then, that had never been done. And this uh, this growth actually brought the Japanese economies uh, right up to the, the size of the American economy, and it really caught a lot of people's attention. Uh, and one of the ministries that was involved in this was uh, MIDI, which I mentioned, I think, once before, but it's uh, the ministry. Ministry of uh, International Trade and Industry. Uh, And that was a central player in organizing the economic activities of the country in a way that uh, most uh, capitalist countries do not see. Uh, Most capitalist countries have various companies just kind of of fighting each other. Uh, They will sort of have these standards boards occasionally. Uh, But if they ever try, try working together, typically the governments in the West will impose antitrust uh, uh, lawsuits against them. We haven't seen this a lot in the past, let's say, 30 years, but or at least 20 years. Uh, Microsoft was the last big one in my recollection in the United States, uh, but it used to happen more. Uh, they broke up AT&T, uh, they broke up Standard Oil, they tried to break, break up IBM. So this happened a lot, and it did, didn't really happen in Japan. Like They, they wanted the these companies to work together to export in order to bring in the resources that the country needed to to purchase what they required for running this economy. And they're very dependent on uh, natural resource imports. And so they, they had this obsession with exporting. 
And the model enabled them, led by MIDI, and MIDI, by the way, was something that was uh, viewed as, as almost a kind of a, a supernatural force in the country whereby they would recruit the only the best and brightest. The, the entrance examination to get into MIDI uh, had like a 90% fail rate. They typically uh, recruited from Tokyo University, uh, which is the best, most difficult to get into university in Japan. Uh, and they had very, very sharp people working there uh, doing all of the all the math that required balancing these production targets and synchronizing activities at different uh, players across the entire country. Again, very much in some ways like how the communist nations were trying to do it. But the difference was they were not trying to pursue ideological goals of uh, uniting the workers of the world or something. They really were just trying to make money. Uh, and I think that's what the Chinese do today. And I think that's really what separated the East Asian tiger economies from, I think, a lot of the communist world. They were very good at it, and they they coordinated uh, to a degree that the West had never done. Uh, so this created an incredible boom. Um, we'll get into some of the statistics later. But uh, th- this is what uh, was the backdrop to Richard Werner's uh, authorship for studying what happened to Japan because this didn't last this, this only lasted until about 1990 and then everything blew up. And so his book is really about what happened and why, why it blew up. So Hans, uh, you know, what, what were your thoughts on, you know, the backdrop to all this and what was going on? Well, I'm happy to be here tonight. I'll start off with that. Um, I guess I should start off with, um, uh, why I was interested in this book. I've been interested in Richard Werner for a uh, a long time before I was familiar with Princes of the Inn or even heard of it. Uh, I think I came across his work six, seven years ago. He's been around a while. Um, he is definitely what I would call a revisionist uh, economist and financial analyst. Although he is very astute, very well credentialed, um, very established, and he, um, to my mind, has never really been rebuked or refuted in anything he's ever said. He is um, one of the most, um, I think, stalwart economists in the world. He's a very data-driven man. Most of his work, if you ever find a chance to familiarize with it, primarily revolves around um, credit creation and the role of credit creation in macroeconomic policy. That's basically the gist of Richard Werner's background. Um, and as Adam said, he's German, uh, he's Anglo German, I think technically, but he is definitely, um, more kind of leans more towards the German side, although he's done plenty of work kind of analyzing, um, the city of London financial system. Uh, many of his better works, so I'm told, are actually written in German, and there is no uh, translation for them in English, unfortunately. And uh, some better academic papers, macroeconomic books, and so forth. Um, Werner's particular field of specialty in German uh, economics would be uh, the Landesbank system, or the uh, small banking system. And uh, Werner has specialized in this for a very long time in analyzing the role of credit creation in spurring industrial economic policy 
uh, through the utilization of small banking networks and sort of deleveraged banking networks. Um, he's definitely more um, in line with sort of pre-Third Reich, uh, Reichsbank uh, sort of banking theory. He's definitely someone who has spent a lot of time studying uh, Hjalmar Schacht, and he's written extensively about that, talked extensively about it. You can find many of his talks that he does in English on YouTube. And um, so I became familiar with him, and um, this was always a book that had shown up. Any kind of good, more unorthodox list of business books or financial books or just texts that you really should read um, that are a little bit off the cuff and try and present a different worldview, this always shows up like near the top, if not like at the top. Um, and it was a book that came out in the 90s, and uh, right, the 90s... I thought it was about 2002, okay, but it could have yeah, been. Yeah, so like early 2000s. Um, and at the time, it was um, pretty, uh, like, a, like a bestseller. In and Japan like, in particular. Yes, in, in Japan, he was revered, um, practically, uh, practically revered as being the man who told the truth about the Japanese economic system and its its crisis um, in the 90s that persisted well into the 2000s and actually kind of persists to this day. Um, at some point, in, there's a documentary, if you don't want to read the book or do some of the additional research, um, there is a documentary that really actually does a nice job summing up the book and summing up the core points of the research. And it's just called Princes of the End. It's free on YouTube. Um, and there's plenty of archival footage of him, uh, funnily enough, from the 80s and 90s when he was in Japan working for Fleming's advisors or something like that. And um, he would go on Japanese news stations in English or even in Japanese. And he would talk about the central issues. He would talk about the Ministry of Finance, the Bank of Japan, uh, credit crunch, so, so on. Uh, so... Uh, Werner definitely spends a decent amount of time in his book um, and, and to some extent in the documentary going into the sort of nascent history of Japan. Um, as Adam pointed out, Japan was forced open uh, in the 19th century by Commodore Matthew Perry. And um, roughly 100 years after that, um, Japan was reeling from the consequences of World War II and was being basically run by um, General Douglas MacArthur. Um, sort of a funny twist of history that nearly 100 years later, basically, uh, America was ruling Japan and was creating a new Japanese economic system for them. Um, Japan, kind of prior to that, is a very interesting country in that it um, had a lot of nascent industry but it was so isolated from global trade, effectively, and it was so isolated from many, uh, much of the Industrial Revolution, for example, that uh, the economy that Japan had uh, before they entered the United States, even in the, the Meiji or Meiji uh, Restoration, um, was much more based on sort of this feudal, localized econ uh, economic system. 
And in that sense, it was very similar, really, to northern England, to uh, much of central Germany, and that you had more localized industry, you had more localized economies, and this allowed for a more natural evolution of localized banking and localized credit creation, which is what kind of spurred their growth and did it in a very safe and um, efficient way later on when they actually were introduced to banking concepts and they were introduced to industrial concepts. It was not hard for them to grasp the basics and then run with it. Um, and it, So when Japan was effectively um, forced onto the world stage in the aftermath of the, the Russo-Japanese War, which they won handily, um, they completely devastated the Russian uh, Navy. And it was kind of an upset victory. Um, everyone had assumed going into that war, well, Japan is this isolated, um, backwards, strange place. And it has nothing going for it. It's fighting amongst itself all the time. Um, many of the descriptions of the Japanese prior to the Americans' entry and opening up um, were characterized mostly by Chinese and Mongol sources uh, due to the Mongol and Chinese dalliances with Japan and their attempted invasions. Um, I'll never forget that I was reading a, a text on this, and um, uh, the Chinese historians, after the, fa the second failed Mongol invasion, regarded, this is a direct quote, the Japanese as both extremely violent and extremely brave. Um, and you can read, you know, uh, regaling stories of uh, lone Japanese uh, swordsmen beheading 20 or 30 Mongol warriors at a time. And uh, just, they were basically regarded as um, insane people who will brutally and violently murder you and that you should leave them alone. Um, but internally, Japan did have metal crafting. It did have yeah, somewhat uh, kind of interesting internal transportation industry based on small boats and horse networks. So they were sort of prime for success early on. These were people that um, were very industrious, had to fight to survive, um, definitely didn't want to be fucked with under any circumstance. And you can kind of see this after World War II in that um, Warner kind of describes they replace uh, munitions with textiles, electronics. And they basically blow up the world with their electronics market instead of their munitions. Um, they become sort of the most fierce businessmen and fierce bankers on the planet, so much so that by the 1970s, um, there were some in the United States who thought, uh, including Richard Nixon, that uh, uh, Japan had effectively won a trade war that America didn't even know was going on. And they were just too talented. They were um, too committed. Uh, uh, they were so, American politicians were completely outclassed. Uh, there's um, yes, there's yeah. footage of people like Bobby Kennedy showing up in Japan at the Sony Expo, uh, just looking like a complete idiot, uh, to be honest, and not understanding yeah. that the Japanese had just gone through a completely devastating war, and these guys were. Whether explicitly or subconsciously doing it, they were they were waging war against the United States and the rest of the world in order to get their self-respect back and their country back. And Bobby Kennedy and 
all these other politicians, they're just wandering around like, gee, look at these, you know, uh, these, these plucky guys, you know, they, they figured out how to make, uh, make, uh, you know, motors like, like, wow, aren't they smart, you know, but had no idea what was coming. I mean, we're talking about like the point where the Japanese were buying Rockefeller Center in New York. They were buying up vast chunks of California uh, by the 80s. Uh, they had no clue. Uh, and part of it was that the arrogance of the people in Washington was such that they wanted it that way. And they did the same thing in Germany, but the Japanese really were were even more uh, excessive in terms of uh, shutting down U.S. industries and steel and car making and electronics. I mean, the United States used to make televisions, uh, and by the 70s, late 70s, that was pretty much gone. Uh, the- I mean, it used to be the, I don't think people realize, <laughs> this, this country used to have the United States uh, I remember looking this up not too long ago, had dozens of separate small to large size, even regional television production companies. Like companies, you could buy a, a TV that was specifically made for the Minnesota market, and that was not uncommon, even into the 70s. And by the late 90s, that was gone completely gone it had been wiped out and by the late 90s it wasn't even entirely coming out of japan but it didn't matter it was the japanese who had effectively destroyed the american television market i mean completely devastated hundreds of companies overnight um yeah and and they and they did it in a way that was pretty much uh unbeatable from yeah, a, a consumer level. I mean, they had lower prices and, and better, they did and better it in a quality. Way, well, they did it in a way too, where they didn't, they didn't, they didn't do the Chinese model, which is, I think, what everyone would assume. Oh, well, they they had environmental pollution, and everyone was living five per people to a Foxconn apartment. No, 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 no. These people were all living high quality lives had their own property often had their better own than goods. the chinese but they, there yes, was still yeah. the the east asian uh willingness to uh, the chinese called eat bitterness but the <laughs> they worked they worked uh, pretty hard long hours for not not great pay and by the 80s that was changing but initially hey. they were they were operating basically like a war operation and and, and not, uh, and that, that was also partially the, uh, and Nick, I'll, I'll let you jump in, but that was partially, um, government policy too. There was, there was a lot of policies to suppress consumption and incre- encourage savings, which obviously generates, uh, investment capital for, for big business. Uh, and that was something that you don't see in the United States. I mean, the, the savings rate, I think in Japan was, something insane, like close to like 40% of their take-home pay was actually put back into the bank. Uh, the Koreans actually did a lot of this too. Uh, and that creates wealth and capital wealth to then go back into further in, uh, capital stock accumulation. Uh, American savings rates, I think, were probably zero to negative uh, by this time with credit cards. Uh, so the uh, the wealth of the United States was really running on a lot of uh, funny money. Uh, but the Japanese, I, I would I would defend their willingness to work hard. They were not just uh, living high life uh, lifestyles, at least in the early years. But Nick, uh, what would you want to add? 
I just wanted to add, uh, Hans was talking about uh, Japanese relationship with the Mongols during the Mongol invasion, and I just, there was a story that I've always remembered, I, and I can't, I can't say for sure if it's apocryphal or not, but I'm going to tell it anyways, because it's, it's, uh, it warms your heart. So, the moment that the Mongols really got freaked out by the Japanese, or, you know, one among many, but... Uh, was they had an emissary that they had sent to Japan, and he, you know he was probably going to give the typical the mongrel the typical mongol request that you either surrender or you know your uh, women will be raped and your children will be murdered, etc. And uh, rather than the emissary returning, they got a box in the mail, basically, right? And they opened the box, and it's it's the head of the man that they had sent. Which, you know, makes sense. But that wasn't the part that freaked them out. What freaked them out was that the head was given, you know, makeup and the box was perfumed. It was done in this very Japanese presentation where, you know, it was this immaculate wooden box and the head was just in perfect condition with, with you know, perfumed incense and everything. So well, it, was a, it was a bento box for a head. There's another apocryphal story and it does kind of relate. And by the way, in the book, um, Werner has several references to, ironically, to the old Chinese uh, empirical model for money management, monetarism, as he calls it. And um, he kind of makes uh, allegories between the monetarism that's preferred by the neoclassical economists and uh, that was utilized during this, this same period, actually, by the sort of Mongol-controlled Chinese empire. Um, but there was another funny story and it has to do with the Japanese um, habit for delaying and, and obfuscating and um, there were there were a series of initial emissaries I guess that were sent way before um, uh, I think Kublai had even conquering China and they had heard of Japan they knew of it um, they didn't really understand it all they knew was that occasionally there were these pirates that would come from Japan and they would raid the Korean and Chinese coastline, and then they would disappear and never be seen again for like two or three years. Well, they sent uh, some kind of emissary, or some they sent some messenger to basically say hello. And um, I think at the time, Japan was going through one of its many um, feudal wars, um, uh, the Shogun Wars. This was a very common part of Japanese history for a very long time. And um, actually, Werner has uh, talks about this as well. That part of the the, empiric, the imperial model of Japanese um, military-led economic development in the 30s and 40s, actually a large part of it was about Japanese cultural and regional unification, because this had, this was a problem that had been plaguing Japan for so long, and many thought it was one of the reasons why Japan was so stuck internally was not that they were too afraid to venture out. It was that the wars and the, the differing regions within Japan were so um, immiserated with each other that uh, they never had an opportunity to get together and actually do something constructive. And so part of that economic policy of unleashing the Zaibatsus, removing shareholder control, utilizing credit creation very, very specifically mostly for munitions development was really about and the, the whole empire really at its core was about unifying japan under one flag 
one sort of common emperor, we're done with the shoguns, we're done with the regionalism, we're kind of moving together. But anyways, um, this, so they sent uh, this emissary in Japan was going through a civil war. This is a thing that happens every two years. And uh, they basically just, uh, they said, okay, that's nice. See you later. And they sent the guy back. And um, at some point, I remember reading that I think that the Mongols sent up to like 50 different emissaries or messengers to continue contacting the Japanese. And the Japanese just ignored them because they just didn't like, they didn't understand what this was about. They just just didn't, they didn't get it. Like, what do you want? And um, finally, when the first Mongol invasion of Japan was attempted and they got destroyed by the, the tsunami, I remember reading that effectively there were only like a few hundred Japanese that even showed up to like, you know, defend the coastline. And um, the Mongols that made it ashore from their like drowned wreckage were immediately executed. And there was this kind of realization amongst the kind of the Chinese historians go into it where the Chinese and Mongol soldiers realize that these are not actual soldiers. These are like the local fishermen who basically had kind of makeshift weapons or whatever. And they were just walking up to wounded or half drowned, uh, invading soldiers and beheading them immediately. And so there's the Japanese got this reputation again, as being extremely violent, but also extremely efficient in that even the rank and file citizenry can do just about anything. Um, And so Werner kind of paints this interesting picture of Japan in the 20s. And I'll just quote from here. Uh, uh, In the 1920s, in many ways, Japan was a different country from the one we have known. Its economic system was not pure free market capitalism, but it was much closer to this ideal than it has ever been since. Neither lifetime employment, seniority-based wage, and bonus system nor company unions were widespread. Firms had few scruples about rapid hiring and firing. Neither did employees have any qualms about quitting to seek greener pastures. Japanese employees change jobs as much as U.S. employees do now. Uh, Unions were organized by trade, not by company, thus providing employees with a better voice to call for pay raises. And he goes on, uh, firms were not majority owned by other companies, as in the post-war system. In the 1920s, there were real capitalists, individuals, and families holding substantial portions of stock. Uh, individual share ownership accounted for a large majority of all shareholdings, while by early 1990s it had fallen to less than 15%. Uh, back in the 1920s or 30s, shareholders were powerful because companies obtained between 30 and 50% of their external funding from stock market. In the post-war era, such as the 70s, fundraising from the stock market accounted for merely 5 to 10%. The shareholders in the 1920s used their influence to demand high dividends, uh, this practice was effectively discontinued by the 1960s. So you get the sense that uh, right before the military effectively takes over the economy and you know, everything is kind of placed under the command of the emperor, um, Japan did have sort of a roaring 20s-esque kind of gilded age economy similar to the United States. It was wild. Uh, you know, we think of today the Japanese system of you basically live and die with one company, right? You work there 30, 40 years. There's not a lot of dynamism, but everything's very stable. 
um, everything's well accounted for, everything's taken care of. That's it's a very smooth economic model. Um, it was very much the opposite. It was super chaotic. There, you know, he kind of goes into how there was double-digit unemployment very frequently. There were riots. It was a, many of the things you do not characterize Japan with was very common, and this sort of necessitated the empire in many ways. The empire was. Uh, really created by Japan um, because they had nothing else left to do. They had they had effectively no other capability for unifying the country and creating a stable economic system. And in order to get the economic system in place for the empire, they were a, they had to and they used this as sort of the cover, establish the zaibatsus more effectively, put the banks in charge and ultimately put the military and the emperor in charge of the banks. That was the very simple breakdown. Um, and part of this also went back to, at the end of the Versailles Treaty in World War I, um, and in general, ever since the end of the Russo-Japanese War, um, there are some historians who go into how Japan really felt, and that they felt that they were excluded from the talks, that they, they didn't have a big say, that um, in the aftermath of Germany's defeat, when you know, the Europeans, the United States are carving up the world, no one went and asked Japan whether or not they wanted a piece of Asia. And so part of what also necessitated the, uh, the empire was something that the Japanese believed, looking at the Europeans, which is that in order to uh, have access to uh, global shipping lanes or even an export market. You need to control the export market. This was based on the old colonial model that they were kind of viewing the French and the English and the Belgians and so forth using very effectively. And the Russians, too, were, were doing this. Um, so that was part of the reason why Korea was seized, why part of China was seized, why part of Southeast Asia was seized, why many island chains were seized. It was effectively because they knew that if they wanted to, the military and the sort of bureaucratic leadership, uh, Werner kind of frames them as the sort of the good guys or at least the least bad people in this whole scenario. They're the people that wanted to actually deliver good results to the people of Japan. And they felt that in order to do that, they had to seize these shipping lanes. And they had to ensure that they controlled the way by which they could create an export market. And the plan was always to transition the industry from war to uh, consumer products or just industrial products at some point. Um, the way, you know, World War II shaking out the way it did didn't actually impact Japanese plan making for their future by that much. It changed it slightly. And it forced them to make certain concessions, but it ultimately, if you kind of go through Werner's thesis, it did not actually change the general outlook of the Japanese in the 30s, which is create an empire, create a large industrial base, eventually take that industrial base, use um, banking and credit very, very sparsely but effectively to build up a net creditor status pour the excess profits from that creditor status back into our industry, make sure our industry is you know, at the top for any credit expenditures and will eventually be able to dominate 
the industrial goods market. Um, now, the United States didn't really understand that by doing what they did, by MacArthur doing what he did and, and you know, trying to, he thought, democratize, although it didn't really shake out that way. Uh, he, in His actions in Japan actually accelerated that. Uh, and allowed the Japanese by the 1950s to basically resurrect their wartime economy. Well, what I was trying to say before uh, was that the State Department, people in Washington were waging a Cold War that was thought that it should include as much of the the world as possible on the side of the U.S. And the main way they did that with especially the two big rivals uh, that they had during uh, the, the Second World War uh, was giving away uh, the middle class of the United States to Germany and Japan by letting them export into the United States, running trade surpluses with the United States, uh, thereby rebuilding those economies and thereby solidifying the the basis for these two allies to then contend against uh, the the communist nations by giving them wealth incentives to be capitalists, but also be friends with the United States because the United States was running these massive trade deficits with them. Uh, and in return, they would be okay with the United States putting soldiers and military bases on their, their territories. And this is what Donald Trump was observing very obviously that it's like, well, what the hell are the Americans getting out of this? First of all, the Cold War is over, Uh, and even during the Cold War, these countries were not paying for the military defense, and the United States was paying for, effectively, access to these countries by giving them uh, economic access to the United States, uh, which in turn undercut a lot of the, the U.S. industry, which employed a lot of people in the middle class. So the... The people, the planners, the military planners in the United States sacrificed the middle class in order to play toy soldier throughout the world and create the U.S. empire. Uh, and I, I, I think it was a terrible deal for most Americans, uh, and it, it came at their expense for the marginal benefit of the defense contractors and the people and politicians in Washington, frankly. Uh, and you can you don't have to look any further than the way the United States works with Japan. Uh, the Japanese uh, prime minister, uh, and this is very interesting, uh, uh, Werner points this out. Uh, he was actually the equivalent of Albert Speer, uh, who was imprisoned in Spandau uh, after Nuremberg. Yes. Uh, who Speer was the, the guy who was running, he was the armaments minister for Germany during World War II, and he was running effectively the economy. Uh, he, he planned how all of the labor and resources were allocated in order to achieve the war goals of uh, the Third Reich, uh, and he was in prison. Uh, in Japan, <laughs> that guy was uh, prime minister, uh, and I guess it's just the ignorance of, again, the Americans well, under not the, understanding uh, the, what the, they're doing, the, but yeah, go ahead. Well, he was un- under the funnily named Liberal Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean um, that's just a translation, <laughs> but whatever. It's it's yeah, good. It, well, again, it, it's so good. The, it's it's smart politics because you're like, yes, hey, yes. don't worry about us. We're liberal and democratic. It's like the Japanese, are like, uh, 
Okay, what what do these like weird Americans want us to do? Uh, okay, we're we're liberal and we're Democrat. Okay, call the party that. Whatever, it doesn't matter what we actually do, but we'll just call it that to appease these people who don't speak our language and they'll never read our. I mean, reading Chinese and Japanese is is not exactly a walk on the park for a Westerner who's used to Latin script. Uh, it, it's pictographic language that's written vertically from right to left. Uh, it's it's a hell of a lot different, and so I think that explains some of the lack of nuance or lack of uh, attention to detail in the Japanese uh, political economy as opposed to Germany, uh, where I think there were a lot more restrictions placed on Germany. And also probably because of the, let's just be honest, that the Jewish influence in the United States was probably much more critical of Germany. And so they had things like the Morgenthau plan uh, calling for uh, decimating the the German people for the rest of you know their existence, which eventually got rolled back uh, with, and replaced with the Marshall Plan. But well, there uh, were there were some ahead. other factors that went into that. I mean, number one, I think that part of the analysis uh, of po- immediate post-war Japan, their economic analysis. I mean, you just look at it practically. This is the only country that's ever actually been nuked. Twice. Two large industrial cities effectively nuked. And not just that, you had dozens of other major industrial centers and cities across the country bombed for months ahead of that. Every port was bombed. Yeah, and a lot of people yeah, don't every, understand this about the yeah. the effects of the American firebombing of right. Japan. Now, the, the atomic bombs were, I think, the emotional... Uh, straw that broke the camel's back that because they're so spectacular and just one one stroke that you can see the the firepower literally of this opposing military that you you feel like you can't you can't defeat that but what had been going on throughout the rest of the country for months if not a year uh after the u.s uh, navy had it completed its island hopping campaign and taken over effectively the all the islands surrounding Japan. Uh, they built these airfields where they were launching uh, these B-29s to go over and, and drop uh, incendiary bombs, not atomic bombs, but just you know, high-explosive devices that would engage the, uh, the, the wooden houses that were actually the Japanese were living in on fire, and they were killing vast numbers of civilians. I think Tokyo, uh, they probably lost over a million people uh, to that, uh, that practice, and they killed way more people uh, than the atomic bombs. Now, if you talk to a liberal school teacher, she's going to tell you that the atomic bombs are this travesty. But the Japanese were already taking way more massive losses before these even happened. Well, so if their, and their their entire way of life was disrupted. Every railroad was bombed. Every granary was bombed. Every commercial fishing fishing vessel was either taken off the seas or just destroyed. I mean, people don't get like the the Japanese economy was cratered effectively. And part of my thinking on this is that I, I think that the calculation must have been for for the creation of the LDP and basically letting, uh, with the exception of the high-profile guys like Tojo, effectively letting all of these other characters, including um, uh, Ichimata and all, all of them, out of jail or letting them back into important positions – was the basic calculus was this. This is an extremely destroyed country. This is a country that neighbors China. And by the late 40s, the American 
elite in the military knew China's lost. Like there was a big question in the 50s who lost China, but everyone knew it was fucked by the 40s. Like there was no way the Kuomintang were going to win. And they knew the Soviets were nearby. And so that there was this allure of communist influence. And I, the impression I get is that they let those guys out of jail and they put them back in positions of power. They purposefully handpicked them because they knew they were the only people that effectively knew how to run Japan. And you had to either ride or die. You had to basically resurrect the empire but take away some of its trappings or this place was going to go communist by 1960. I think that was the calculus, whereas Germany was a bit different. German, and the, and Germany, the Korean War. but uh, yes, yes, and I think the Korean War was a huge wake-up call. And I, I, Germany, you know, had a long – western parts of Germany had a long history of opposing communism, and the Americans were much more ingrained there, and there was still a middle class, and it was just different scenarios. So you could be tougher on them. You could do denazification and – all this ideological, psychological warfare. They, they couldn't afford to do that against the Japanese early on. And I think that American industry later kind of paid the price for, uh, for that. But you get the sense that uh, the, they basically recreated the Japanese war machine by 1955. Um, and the intention was to ensure that the Japanese population was well-fed, had jobs, had industry, had a sense of meaning. Because if you remove those things, as we saw over and over and over again, during that time period, communism is very attractive. And it's nearly impossible to root it out once it's in. Yeah, You saw it in Vietnam. Yeah. You saw it in Cambodia. You saw it in China. You saw it in large swaths it, of Russia. Nick wanted to jump in. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that another problem that they have in Japan is that it's uh, when you try to install round eyes with hooked nose, they stand out a lot more. They still have this problem today. Yeah, if if you uh, if you follow the trail of what the Economist has been pushing, I've talked about this before, but. They have been pushing for diversity and opening the borders and immigrants in Japan for years. And if you trace where The Economist is written, it's the city of London, it's owned by the Rothschilds. Um, that agenda is well at hand, but they have been resisting it for quite some time. Uh, and regarding uh, Hans's recent comment about the uh, communist infiltration in Japan, one of the reasons the Japanese economy was, at least up until, I'd say, the 2000s, structured around more of this uh, family uh, long-term uh, employment structure, which gave it, frankly, a lot of advantages because of the ability to uh, import uh, or implement uh, labor-saving technologies uh, with the support of the unions, with the understanding that they would not be fired after they automate away their job, they would just be retrained or, and, and whatnot. Uh, that that policy of, of considering the importance of the workers, frankly, above that of the of the share, well, obviously of the shareholders, but also almost of the customers, uh, that came about in partially in response to the worries that communism was going to infiltrate J Japan. And by giving the workers a stake in their companies, 
they avoided a lot of strikes. They avoided a lot of unrest, and it just created a, a much more balanced system that led to, I think, a lot of their inroads into the rest of the world in terms of exporting uh, because of the, their, the quality of their products uh, was so much higher, and they were able to do it at a price that was um, very competitive. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with uh, their restructuring of this uh, labor system, uh, kind of a, as a third way uh, away from the cap- hyper capitalist, but also away from the communist system. Yeah, uh, Werner has a good point that um, so uh, in the 1920s and 30s, more than two thirds of profits among leading Japanese companies were paid out as dividends. A sizable 6% were paid out as director's bonuses and only 25% were kept as reserves. By contrast, from 66 to 70, 43% were out as dividends, only 2% went to director's bonuses, and 55% was reinvested. So you're talking about their capability to innovate very quickly, to reinvest in their workers, to ensure there's a high quality of standard in the workplace and to make sure that management is well compensated so management feels invested. That is crucial. That is super crucial. And the high dividend payout was uh, predominantly structured around ensuring that uh, average Japanese savers and investors who worked with their banks to grow their own wealth, grow their own savings, were getting large returns on their savings from these large companies. So again, the Japanese kind of created, by the 60s and 70s, they had a great model, super great model. And they had effectively fended off the threat of ideological communism because the country is growing rapidly. Everyone, even the middle class or working class, are seeing their savings grow, their net wealth is growing. They feel like they're invested in, in the workplace. You don't have jet-setting corporate billionaires acting like assholes and doing TED Talks. Okay, It's completely been um, extricated from the culture, and there's no financial ability for them to do that. And the tieback to the Japanese banking system, which is basically controlled by the Ministry of Finance, um, the best way I can really describe the Japanese Ministry of Finance during this time, pre-1990, I don't know how to – it's like the Department of Treasury plus the Federal Reserve plus J.P. Morgan <laughs> plus like well, the SEC. Like it, it's a massive – think of like if you have an empire. You're like I need, I need a thing to manage all financial operations for my empire. That's basically it. It's a holdover from the imperial era, and it managed everything from banking and financial regulation to money supply to um, window guidance, which we'll get into, to credit creation, to interest rates, to, to, to the stock market, to everything. One single ministry basically oversaw it all. There, there is a difference, however, between my understanding, and, and actually I, I appreciate you clarifying this because uh, – my interest had never really been in the the banking sector per se, other than somewhat uh, noticing that it has a lot of influence. But the mechanics of it have sort of put me to sleep, to, to be honest. And I've always been more interested in the industrial side of how economies run. But my understanding is that the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance are separate entities, and they were actually at somewhat uh, loggerheads at times. Now, 
are they the same thing or am I mistaken? The Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance are not the same thing. So although at one point the Bank of Japan was subordinate to the Ministry of Finance. So for a long time in Japan, uh, they kind of bucked the trend of many industrialized and first world status, uh, you know, OECD countries around the world in that they didn't have an independent central bank. Their central bank was by law completely subordinate to, in most ways, uh, the Ministry of Finance, which was ultimately subordinate to the ruling government, which was generally just members of the LDP. And the way that the Japanese political system worked prior to the 90s and prior to the crisis was very interesting in that most uh, most financial, regulatory, larger systemic management issues were relegated back to the Japanese bureaucracy. And there's a wide variety of bodies that make up the Japanese bureaucracy, various planning committees, various industrial management groups, banking committees, and the Ministry of Finance itself encompassed large parts of this. There were several economic functions that were in other kind of agencies or other ministries. Um, there was a, a massive, very, very tightly knit and very efficient but large bureaucracy. And they basically managed uh, the country and they managed the financial system and really the economy as a whole. And they oversaw the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan was subordinate to them. And Japanese politicians did not have the capability to go out and rabble rouse and interrogate the Bank of Japan members on public television the way that we do here with like Fed appointees. I think they were doing that the other day with um, some woman named Shelton. Um, totally different back in the day. And most politicians in Japan did not focus on economic issues even really as like political punchlines. I think that uh, politics was very boring. It was very stable. Local, it was mostly about local politics, and Werner kind of describes it, and they kind of bring this up in the documentary more, that um, uh, local politicians mostly focused on public works projects, basically. And that was it. That was the extent of your job as a local LDP politician. And so the Bank of Japan was subordinate to a large, powerful ministry that had deep, sometimes familial, certainly professional ties to uh, the Zaibatsus and the private commercial banks. So the three of them formed this sort of tripartite system that kept the Bank of Japan in line. Now, as Werner describes it, uh, the Bank of Japan acted as a control center of the cre creation and allocation of purchasing power. Its governor headed the National Financial Control Association, which was operated by the BOJ and implemented, but the resource allocation plans worked out by the Cabinet Planning Board. You can already see there's plenty of different pieces of interacting bureaucracy here that um, it's sometimes it's not really clear who has authority over who. Um, and to my kind of reading of this, I think it was purposefully designed in such a way in order to limit the ability of the Bank of Japan to act independently. And I'll, I'll get to why I think that is in a sec. Uh, the plan was structured on a top-down basis. First, the needed output was decided upon. 
and then a hierarchy of manufacturers first, subcontractors seconds, and raw material importers third was determined. Finally, the banks were required to ensure that purchasing power is made available for all the firms involved to be able to acquire the inputs in their production process. While shareholder value influence is eliminated, competition was inserted at all levels because the employees of companies and also the banks were made to complete, compete in ranking hierarchies for promotion and other rewards. Thanks to them, resources could be allocated to industries effectively. So there's this theory of window guidance. And this goes back to the empire and even pre-empire to an extent. Window guidance is basically you have a very select window of credit allocation. And in that credit allocation, you distribute to a certain hierarchy of banks with a quota system, a quota allocation system with certain parameters and contingencies. And then they have their own, these commercial banks have their own quota systems internally they're required to by law. Now, how they configure them, I think, is kind of technical, but they're required to have their own internal quota systems, or they were. And then they distribute to individual branches, and then they branch out from there further on. So at all levels, there are, sure, there are certain elements of instituted hierarchy to ensure that credit allocation is equalized across Japan, and it is equalized to the needed industries that Japan is focused on. This is sort of a an interesting take on like old uh, Ricardo's theory of hyper-focus and your, your, like, your competitive advantage. So much so that Japan was restructuring kind of capitalist theory around certain industrial sectors to the point where the entire economy was managed very efficiently to derive savings and credit towards those sectors. So that was kind of how the Bank of Japan was in charge of. Now, the Bank of Japan, you're right, was butting heads a lot with um, with the Ministry of Finance. And this kind of makes up the central thesis of the book and certainly the documentary. Um, who are the princes of the yen? Well, to Richard Werner, the princes of the yen are the various governors and members of the various boards that make up the Bank of Japan. Obviously, I think that uh, Werner, and uh, Dr. Dr. Werner, if you're listening to this, maybe I hope you'll agree, uh, 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 Mr. Mieno, who came later on, uh, basically oversaw the collapse of the Japanese banking sector on purpose. Um, would be maybe the king of the yen. But the princes of the yen were basically uh, the members of the bank, the Bank of Japan. And it's about their struggle to retain independence and eventually achieve independence and purposefully restructure the banking system towards open capital flow, towards uh, buying up government bonds to increase purchasing power and to fluctuate the value of the yen and to join Japan into sort of the worldwide currency manipulation foreign exchange markets. That was, this is really their struggle. And so he kind of goes on in 1946 with the approval of the U.S. occupation, a young Bank of Japan official named Hisato Ichimata was appointed BOJ governor. The board initially used the reconstruction finance department inside the Industrial Bank of Japan to supply the economy with funding. In January 1947, it was separated and established as the public, uh, or the public reconstruction finance bank, uh, whose job was to provide prefer preferential funding for strategic 
industries. It in turn was funded by government bills that the central bank had a discount. So the Bank of Japan was purposefully being limited by the Ministry of Finance and told specifically what to do and how to operate with the government. But here's the thing, is he notes the early Bank of Japan members were handpicked by the United States. Now, as Werner kind of goes into later, it is fascinating that by the 80s, late 80s, the Bank of Japan members who basically wrestle control effectively from the Ministry of Finance and start to become independent start doing just about everything the United States wants them to do, liberalizing their currency, letting it float, uh, allowing for foreign buyers to access Japan's stock market, allowing for foreigners to access Japan's companies, allowing for more imports into Japan, uh, using the World Trade Organization to pressure them. Well, the Bank of Japan effectively went along with all of that. And I think Werner's central thesis, and he's talked about this before, is that the Bank of Japan was constructed in a way that it is like a fail-safe, and it was a fail-safe if the Japanese became too powerful. By the late 70s, and even in the early 80s, uh, Japanese capital outflows were in the trillions of yen, tens of trillions of yen every year. And that's when you saw the property acquisition. That's when they're buying up companies in Asia, Europe, the United States, Canada, even South America. They are devastating industries across the globe. And they are investing in commercial real estate, residential real estate. They're investing in shipping. They're investing in ports. To to this day, the Japanese uh, actually own more U.S. Treasury debt than the Chinese. Uh, and they're very close, and they may have switched in you know recent months or something. But they're they've accumulated an incredible amount of foreign uh, assets by purchasing uh, these these assets. And I think it's interesting that they own the treasury debt. Uh, in 1986, according to the documentary, the they bought 75 percent of all U.S. Treasury bonds, uh, which is incredible. Uh, the United States is running budget deficits, trade deficits, and Japan is bankrolling three quarters of that. Um, it, it's astonishing, and so that uh, that accumulation was, I think, more safely placed in U.S. Treasury debt because it gets to the side of the government on Japan. But what really was happening in the '80s that got a lot of the public's uh, ire was when they were buying these landmark properties. Uh, right. Pe- Pebble Beach in California, Rockefeller Center, as I mentioned, uh, they tried to buy part of Yosemite. I mean, it was it was just getting so absurd that that people were were angry about it. And uh, you think they would do that with uh, with China too, but somehow the media has uh, hoodwinked everybody into ignoring the fact that China is even more uh, powerful than Japan. But back in the '90s, Congress would actually hold hearings uh, that were wonkishly titled like you know lessons for american industrial policy from japan and they're actually trying to teach people something as opposed to just get points and uh and do ad hominem against their opponents they're actually trying to to educate and inform people and implement good policies there were guys who would come in there with these graphs showing you know the massive trade deficit with japan 
the trade negotiators were of a higher caliber, in my opinion, back then. Uh, a guy that I'm somewhat of a fan of, uh, Clyde Preskowitz, he wrote a pretty good book called Trading Places. Uh, and he recounts in one of these documentaries I saw on the subject that he would, uh, on his junkets to Japan, he would uh, he would talk to these uh, these Japanese CEOs about, okay, I, I'm looking at your numbers. These, this is a public uh, corporation, and, and this is what you reported. Uh, you're running losses on on this uh, semiconductor factory you just built. Like, why are you doing that? Like, how are we supposed to uh, trade with you if you're going to dump literally uh, all of these products into the market and and run losses? And he's like, well, you have to understand that you know my trade group has uh, this is the Japanese guy speaking has required us to enter this market. And one of the reasons uh, that was that happened was that the 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 Ministry of international trade and industry again was doing this policy where they were encouraging exports and target industries and semiconductors in the eighties was a big one. And Intel had to go to war with Japan for a while about that. And that's one of the reasons they left uh, the DRAM market uh, because they just couldn't keep up uh, and they focused on microprocessors. But the negotiators at the time were actually smart enough to know these things and they were engaged at a level that they were actually having talks with a somewhat high-tech industry executive in Japan. Today, I don't even think this happens anymore. Uh, but just the nuance of like why that happened a lot uh, back then was that these trade groups were actually given incentives by MIDI to go into these export markets. And if they did that, in exchange, they would be given access to the protected markets in Japan, which were extremely profitable. So that sort of offset their losses in the export markets. Uh, so in other words, they could they could run like the uh, the local delivery vans or something, which is also uh, to mention somewhat of how Japan's economy works. It's it's a quasi uh, social welfare program for people who can't get a job anywhere else. They 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 leave these like very service-oriented industries very protected so that in case that somebody can't uh, can't compete on the international level they'll still get a job which I think is a good idea but uh, at least they're not sitting on the couch doing nothing at least they're engaged and have some uh, some self-respect that's how it works there but the companies in a way were doing that too because they needed access to that home market that was protected and they would go into these crazy uh, export drives that was literally uh, running losses and China does this too. Uh, and I think, but my main point was that the, the sophistication of the U S Congress in the eighties and nineties was a lot higher than it is today. When you have, uh, uh, Alexandria, uh, Oxasio, uh, Cortez, whatever her name is, just can't even answer a question about foreign policy, uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, Palestinian Israeli conflict despite the fact that that has been, uh, unfortunately, one of the major issues that has uh, been on the U.S. Congress's uh, plate for the past 50 years. She couldn't answer uh, a single question about that when she was pressed. Uh, and she just wants to talk about racism and all this nonsense. Back in the 80s and 90s, actually cared about the worker. They cared about the economy, and they were astute enough, uh, and the media wasn't uh, as, as corrupt uh, enough to allow them to do that. And so I think it's a big contrast with today. Yeah. Well, going more into um, kind of the the Bank of Japan being this sort of uh, rogue actor in the Japanese government, um, 
the the book is full of i think starting really in like chapter five uh five or six it really goes deep into what the bank of japan was doing and that's in case you were wondering you know who are the princes of the yen it's everyone at the bank of japan and some of the large commercial japanese banks hedge funds trading houses and so on that made off like bandits and effectively uh nearly bankrupted the country as Werner points out prior to 1990 uh japan had never had a single bank default never had any fin large financial problems. Even getting nuked didn't cause the kind of financial problems that the 1990s did. And we'll kind of get to that. But this was a, these were a clique of people in Japan who were closely tied to the United States services in one way or another. And uh, many of the early ones had been handpicked by the US. And so that kind of reinforces my theory, and I think Werner's theory, um, that this was a, a uh, break glass in case of emergency option, which was using the Bank of Japan to nuke the Japanese economy and destroy their financial uh, capabilities and their industrial capabilities if they became too much of a threat. So what is his evidence for that? I, I mean, I, well, I, I, I get me, the there's, idea, there's, but... There's tons of it. There's tons. I mean, I okay. can start going into it. So um right off the bat like into the late 40s right after the bank of japan is created and ichimada is put in place um here's a quote the bank of japan was unhappy about the activities of the economic stabilization board for it encroached on what the central bank considered its turf the creation and allocation of credit the bank of japan resented the fact that the priority categories were defined by the esb and the mof and the ministry of finance in accordance with the wartime Bank of Japan law, Ministry of Finance expected the central bank to act merely as its agent by faithfully enforcing the instructions. That was not Ichimada's vision of the central bank's role. Second, the central bank resented the activities of the Reconstruction Finance Bank, an institution that it did not control and which challenged its monopoly on the control of the creation and allocation of credit. The activities of the wartime bureaucrats determining the credit and allocation allocation of credit continued, creation allocation of credit continued, the central bank would not regain its pivotal role in the economy. Ichimada lost no time virtually simultaneously with the priority reproduction system. He established his own additional system to direct funds to those priority industries high on his personal list. So here you have a guy who basically is in the background slowly building up his own business connections, political connections, and he's effectively picking and choosing who to enrich in Japan, which saibatsus to work with, which commercial banks to give prefer preferential treatment to. So right off the bat, you have him and all of his subordinates, again, handpicked, specifically handpicked by the United States, who immediately start trying to undermine the system, immediately. Uh, he goes on, the Bank of Japan's control had already been asserted a year earlier when the director of the banking department had issued instructions that in principle banks were not allowed to increase their outstanding load balance beyond the balance of the 20th of March 1946, so that permit uh, from the government. This prevented low priority industries and consumers from laying claims to scarce resources. Ichimada now adopted a two-pronged reflation policy. 
First, while the banks were damaged by bad debts, he borrowed another trick from Hyalmar Shock's toolkit and turned the Bank of Japan itself into the banker to the nation. Shocked had used active discounting of certain types of bills issued by official organizations to selectively direct credit to priorities or projects, priority industries or projects. Ichimana did the same in the early post-war years with his stamped bill system. Uh, so let me read this one part again. First, while the banks were damaged by bad debts, he borrowed another trick from Hyalmar Shock's toolkit and turn the Bank of Japan itself into the banker to the nation. Now, this is very interesting because this is already in direct confrontation with what the Bank of Japan is supposed to be doing. The Bank of Japan is not really a Bank of Japan, and it's not even really a classical central bank in any way you think of it. It's kind of a name ascribed to a vague department of the Ministry of Finance. And technically, this man and this department was entrusted with certain responsibilities that they immediately ignored. And they immediately started building up their own capital network and lending directly to the government, even into the early 40s, or I'm sorry, late 40s. So this is very odd because they were specifically asked not to do this, told not to do this, but instead they did it anyways. He goes on, in the end, Ichimada had reinstated full control over both the quantity of new bank loans and their sector allocation in a mechanism that later became known as window guidance. So while window guidance was a kind of an already established practice and it would go on for a long time and it had plenty of benefits, it was the fact that it was being selectively used and was being utilized by the central bank, by the quasi not yet central bank to basically ensure its inevitable creation as the central bank. Um, and so later on, uh, uh, he kind of goes into how uh, Ichimada kind of starts to convince U.S. authorities to give in MacArthur to give him more control. Um, so a big threat to Ichimada and the powers of the Bank of Japan was the plan by the head of the SCAPS Economic Science Division and fellow Democrats to create a more democratic structure for the powerful central bank with proper checks and balances. The Economic Science Division recommended the establishment of a separate policy board whose task was to be made to be to make monetary policy and supervise the operations of the Bank of Japan staff. Ichimada vigorously opposed this plan, arguing that it would reduce the efficiency of monetary policy. He prevailed. It was agreed to place the new policy board inside and thus under the control of the central bank. So wait a minute. <laughs> Here's an, another part of the problem. The people who were supposed to oversee the central bank are now working inside the central bank. This doesn't make sense. Ichimada thus was the creator of the system of a, quote, sleeping policy board that made no important decisions for multiple decades. Ichimada's advice was listened to by, by U.S. authorities. This included his recommendation not to go ahead with the dissolution of the Zaibatsu banks. While MacArthur favored the abolition of the wartime government loan guarantee program, Ichimada persuaded him otherwise. The system stayed in place, and by socializing credit risk, 
many new firms, including an unknown electronic startup called Sony, managed to obtain vital bank funding. No doubt Ichimata had powerful backers, for he remained in the job for eight and a half years, setting a record as BOJ governor. After that, he even moved higher, making the transition to Minister of Finance, a rare move for a true Bank of Japan man, not repeated. So Ichimata basically is the man who purposefully ignored many of the sort of traditional foundations of the new post-war economy and the imperial economy in order to set up his own sort of quasi-private system. And then he goes on to become Minister of Finance for a long time. And he basically sets the financial course of the country, and he kind of creates the um, uh, the the impetus for people like uh, Tadashi Sasaki, uh, Mieno, all these other men who would go on to be, as Werner calls them, princes of the end, men who basically oversaw um, the gradual liberalization of Japan's finances and expansion into the open market, which doomed them. Um, and so this is kind of fast forwarding a bit, but um, later on, window guidance kind of starts to get public attention. And there's talk of banning the practice. So it was technically abolished multiple times, first time in 1965. Uh, uh, so while the BOJ loathed Tanaka's energetic intervention, the central bank had managed to extract one major concession from the politicians and minister of finance. Tanaka agreed to change the finance law making the issuance of bonds possible. In November 1965, the first batch of Japanese government bonds came onto the market. This change tipped the power balance between the MOF and the BOJ distinctly in favor of the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan had won yet another battle. With bonds available as a means to fund government spending, politicians and the Ministry of Finance were less likely to demand extra money from the BOJ, and hence they were less likely to challenge its control over credit creation. At the same time, the finance law did not allow the central bank to underwrite newly issued government bonds. The BOJ could not be easily forced to monetize fiscal policy. This meant it now had the power to render fiscal policy ineffective by deciding whether to back it with credit creation or not. A gap had opened between monetary and fiscal policy. So even though the late 60s and the 70s were a great time for Japan's economy, the the Seeds of discord were already being sown in the background. And very rapidly, the American-created branch, uh, sort of rogue actor, was now beginning to act a lot like the Federal Reserve. It was beginning to establish a relationship with uh, the central government that the Federal Reserve has with the U.S. federal government and with the commercial banking sector. It basically runs it. And the federal government is basically in debt and is reliant upon the central bank to finance operations and to keep the economy going. This was not how the Japanese had envisioned things going on. And in fact, many in Japan, Werner notes, and this is why his book was so popular, didn't know this happened. This is all kind of taking place behind the scenes. This is a very quiet, bureaucratic politicking. Uh, but it was a slow takeover by this rogue entity well into the 70s, and then later in the 80s when they kind of became independent, uh, that results in them really seizing control 
over the Japanese economy and being able to determine as much as which goods are imported at which value or which production will take place today, which piece of the government fiscal policy will actually receive monetization. When you allow for that, you're basically allowing a certain clique of people who by the 80s, Werner notes become very infatuated with Milton Friedman, uh, neoclassical or monetarist economics. And so you have a true American influence from the American financial sector being imparted upon this body that is now slowly and quietly taking control of the economy and has the ability to open up the country's finances, which is really what this was all about on some level. Because when Japan joined GATT, which was the predecessor to the WTO in the 50s, and when it joined the OECD, there was an intense amount of consternation from other members. Uh, France, in particular, was apparently pissed off and um, nearly left both bodies because of this. But everyone was kind of angry with it um, because Japan was such an insulated economy insulated banking system, insulated corporate stock system, insulated bond market. It wasn't open. How is it part of this subset of open economies? How do they get to participate in our economy? We can't participate in theirs. Well, the American argument for a long time was we need them. We need them. If we don't have them, they're going to go communist. They're going to join the Chinese. We can't have that. So you need to just suck it up. But eventually we will get them to open up. And so the American financial sector, working with many of these you know, princes of the yen and sort of their acolytes in academia with economic theory, take what was very successful about the Japanese industrial economy and blow it up. And they immediately start to uh, expand the purchasing power by purchasing large amounts of assets and, and government bonds. And they explode the amount of yen in the market. And this actually creates a sort of mini bubble in burst in the 70s. It's kind of resolved by 75, 1975. And um, doesn't get talked about a lot because by 1975, everything had kind of righted itself. But it was the first time that Japan had actually experienced a business cycle that we think of it in the way that we think of it. And it was strictly because the Japanese central bank, uh, the quasi-central bank at the time in the 70s, was trying to basically test the limits of what they could do. They were trying to test whether or not they could actually create inflation. They didn't know if they had the power or the capability to do so because of their sort of technically limited role. But they were completely able to do so, and they suffered no consequences for it. Now, he, Werner does go into how there were attempts by this point in the late 70s from the Ministry of Finance to unwind the Bank of Japan because the Japanese bureaucracy, certain members of the Zaibatsus, and uh, certain members of the government became aware of what was going on. They understood that this central bank is now acting a lot like the Bank of England it's acting very similarly to uh, the Federal Reserve. It's mostly engaged in monetarist expansion, which is not what it's supposed to be doing. It's strictly there to be monitoring and overseeing credit allocation. They failed 
they strictly failed because by that point, the Japanese economy was now so reliant on the day-to-day operations of this quasi-central bank. And because the people like Miyano, Takashi, Ichimata, all of them had basically ensured their stature with the Jap- parts of the Japanese business community, they were able to kind of save themselves. And there was a lot of downward pressure that was applied to the people that really wanted to um, undo the Bank of Japan and ensure that they didn't have this kind of authority. There were attempts in the late 70s to actually abolish it entirely, and they those failed as well. Uh, basically, every attempt to rein them in uh, failed, and every time there was some kind of legal matter that uh, had to do with their authority, they won it and expanded their authority. Um, so by the 80s, when we think of Japan, you know, uh, uh, kind of taking over the world in the Reagan era, uh, the yeah, they called it Japan Inc. Yeah, when in um, uh, in in their war with their trade war with Reagan, uh, by that point he, he 80s, didn't he didn't fight it that well. But uh, yeah, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't but uh, they were basically a independent central bank, and this presented an, a great opportunity for the United States. Because finally, Japan, while it was expanding and there was an excess credit buildup, an immense excess credit buildup, hundreds of trillions of yen on the open market, uh, and a very increasingly limited supply of goods and services internally within Japan uh, that could actually meet that credit buildup. Now Japan was exposed. And this kind of furthers my theory that this was in some ways uh, a liquidity trap that the Japanese were placed into by their own central bank. Um, Maybe at the behest of the United States. I don't know. Uh, Certainly what the documentary and the book go into is that uh, in the run-up to this, there was a lot of criticism of the Japanese economic structure, which is very odd. In the 70s, it kind of starts, and he writes, uh, the first doubts among the broader public about Japan's economic structure were sown in the mid-1970s. In many ways, this episode represented a test run of the much bigger and more far-reaching events of the 80s and 90s. It certainly provided an important learning and testing ground for key Bank of Japan uh, officials. Moreover, the Bank of Japan felt that it needed to stimulate domestic demand sharply because this sudden strengthening of the yen was going to hurt exports. So it used its window guidance control mechanism to make banks significantly create more credit. What were at the time record amounts of liquidity were pumped into the economy. In the end, the negative shock to exporters ended up being smaller than feared because the yen had been greatly undervalued during the dollar peg system. Moreover, Japan's economic structure essentially remained closed to manufacturing imports. All in all, the new exchange rate was an insurmountable problem for exporters. But the media propaganda apparatus starts to churn. And while they kind of get over this crisis in the 70s and everything's okay, 
uh, out of out of the blue, there's a lot of criticism. We need to reform the economy. We need to reform Japan. The old system doesn't work. And again, Werner is sort of perplexed throughout his book by this because the data shows that it was working spectacularly well for the most part. If you ignore many of the behind-the-scenes machinations going on, the Japanese economy of the 1960s and 70s, even the early 80s, was fantastic. And so why would you get rid of that system? Why would you get rid of window guidance? Why would you get rid of preferential treatment for industrial manufacturers? Why would you get rid of high savings rates? Why would you Why would you get rid of tightly controlled credit mechanisms? Why would you do any of that? Because it was working fantastically well. The only people who would want you to do that would be certain members of the Japanese financial community who wanted to engage in speculation, which up to that point was very difficult to do with the Japanese financial sector, and the United States. Those are the only people, and I guess other members of the sort of Western global trade alliance, whatever, uh, those are the only people that would actually want Japan to abandon what had made it successful. And it's really interesting. If you look at a chart, I think this was put together by the Madison Project, um, of uh, growth in real per capita GDP in Japan, Britain, and the United States from 1870 to uh, 2008. By 1970, uh, Japan had effectively caught up with Great Britain in terms of growth in real per capita GDP. And by the mid-70s, they had surpassed them. The only, and they were closing in on the United States by the mid-80s before their kind of tumble. So the only people who could reasonably say, we, wanna, we, we don't want this anymore, this needs reform, are probably people that are uh, feeling the heat from competition with Japan. So it kind of goes back to my theory that sort of the American ideological infusion into the Japanese sectors and the some members of the Japanese banking and, and financial uh, uh community wanting to engage in speculation and grow their wealth, which at that point had been very difficult to do, given the shareholder laws and dividend laws and things like that. Uh, they're the only people that really wanted this. Everyone else was doing fantastically under it. And so the Bank of Japan really is were the princes of the yen, and they actually ended up creating so much yen that they collapsed their own banking sector. And uh, as Werner had pointed out, and I pointed this out earlier, this had never happened. And going into the 80s and 90s, um, it becomes very intense because the Japanese really don't know how to deal with this because, like I said, many of these machinations and the restructuring of their bureaucratic system before the purposeful restructuring of their economy had gone unreported and many Japanese even in the business community didn't even know what had happened until Werner wrote his book about it and so you can understand that in, in a country like Japan where you kind of go along to get along everything is very tightly controlled 
there are benefits to that. Everything, life is very stable. Employment is gainful. You don't worry about political machinations, um, but you should because ultimately there's always going to be political machinations. And I think that the Japanese uh, post-war lull into complacency and sort of um, admiration of their own success had kind of prevented them from seeing what was going on, which is that they were basically being sold down the river. Um, very strange. I, I think that's I think that's right. I think the Japanese thought they could do no wrong at that point. Uh, I already mentioned the uh, massive amounts of uh, capital outflows and purchases of foreign assets. Uh, but the the statistic that uh, Werner likes to give, and I've I've heard this many times before, uh, was that the value of the land surrounding the Imperial Palace uh, in Tokyo was worth more than all of uh, the state of California in the United States. And as I mentioned, the entire island of Japan, which is 26 times smaller than the United States landmass, was six times more valuable than the United States. So there was a bubble. Uh, the stock market also was in, uh, observing a, a massive increase of about 25% a year uh, from 1985 to 1989, uh, much more than uh, GDP uh, growth, uh, even nominal GDP growth. Uh, and I think in my book, at least that's a bubble. Uh, and Werner points out that a lot of the monetary policy was uh, encouraging this. He actually, through his interviews, which I would uh, applaud him for, as opposed to somebody like uh, Ben Bernanke, who probably never really talked to any Japanese uh bankers, uh, let alone the, the lower level ones, but which Werner did, uh, he actually got the, uh, the evidence that the Bank of Japan was requiring uh, a huge loosening of credit standards and also encouraging uh, loan growth uh, to occur to the point where companies like Nissan and Automaker were making more money on uh, stock and real estate speculation than they were making cars. And, and Werner's point of view, and this is where he gets uh, to his editorial side of things, is that this should not be allowed. Uh, any type of non-productive uh, credit growth, uh, whereas it's basically going into the purchases of assets, but not actually building of assets, but just purchasing of assets with the anticipation that the price will go up, which is speculation, uh, should not be allowed. Uh, and it has been actually been encouraged in places like Japan, which created this bubble in real estate and the stock market. Uh, it's also been encouraged in the United States after the financial crisis. It's been encouraged by Greenspan uh, after the LTCM crisis in 98, uh, when Russia defaulted. Uh, this hedge fund was uh, caught off guard with all these positions that it got itself into, and it was uh, linked to a lot of other uh, financial intermediaries that would have fallen apart somewhat like how Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns fell apart uh, 10 years later. Uh, but Greenspan uh, encouraged the other banks to lend to them and, and open up the, the lending. And some of that was uh, fueling some of the stock market bubble uh, and then later the real estate bubble, uh, which he sort of tried to obviate any responsibility for. Uh, but th those sorts of things where these... In these loans are going into purchases of assets that already exist, uh, or at least uh, assets that are not producing uh, wealth that will bring in 
the money that will pay for things like the trade deficit have been encouraged quite a bit and it creates these bubbles uh, and Japan didn't quite have this. They were encouraging capital investment, investment in uh, plant uh, and equipment, uh, which was having tremendous success. And it, it is a huge question as to why uh, this policy was suddenly changed. I think obviously there was a lot of pressure from the United States to make these reforms because the trade imbalances were getting to the point where the electorate actually was smart enough to complain about these uh, job losses that were occurring because of Japan's inroads into the U.S. market. Uh, but I think, as you point out, the complacency probably did set in at that point. Um, and I'm not entirely convinced it was some like CIA like plot to get like the Bank of Japan to sabotage the economy. I don't know if that was it was that explicit, but I do believe that there was something to I think Werner's assertion that the Bank of Japan ministers had their ego uh, invested in their activities and they thought that they could uh, actually improve things uh, from a, an already very good position, but they thought they could make it even better by implementing these reforms, turning the economy more into a, a consumer-oriented economy, uh, making it less investment-driven, uh, which would also reduce the influence and power of these rival industries, and then, relatively speaking, their influence would go up. And I think there was some of that. Um, well, yeah, I don't, I don't look at it like a John Lacare novel where there's, you know, spooks influencing, like, whispering in the ears of the Bank of Japan members. And I don't think Werner looks at it that way. I mean, he, he well, some it. people accuse him of that, and and you told oh, me well, that yeah. uh, he, when he tried to publish it in the West, he got a, a visit from some like. Uh, unclear uh, entity that was. Oh yeah, scare well we him. should go into that story. Um, so I forgot to mention this. Apparently, there's multiple editions of uh, Princesses of the End. The one that I got online, uh, I don't believe, is the second edition. Um, uh, and so Richard Werner was actually giving an interview with Hugh Hendry, who is this insane Scottish day trader from Real Vision. I, I'd uh, call him eccentric, but yes, uh, I think he's, he, very he's, entertaining, he's psychotic. Actually. He's a funny dude, but he's just wacko. Um, um, he's but anyways, he was he's giving an he was giving an interview with him, which is an, it's a great interview. You should watch it. It's it's entertaining. Um, and um, so Werner, they're talking about Princes of the End and some other stuff like the ECB. And uh, Werner says, well, you know, um, actually, we just got Princes of the End reprinted second edition this year, a few months ago. And um, this has two additional chapters that were not in the original print. And Hugh Hendry's like, well, what was in the original print or, you know, what was originally intended to be printed? And Richard Werner says, well, <clears throat> My, there, were, there were two chapters uh, that my publisher, Taylor and Francis, I think is his publisher, uh, said that they didn't want to publish because they, uh, they had received a visit from, and he calls it, a, an, an agency from the United States. An agency from the yeah. United States yeah, right. paid his publisher yeah. a visit and told him not to publish two specific chapters. Pro probably not the that, federal aviation uh, administration yeah, or agency not like the uh the fishing game wildlife whatever people um another agency so, yeah yeah another yeah another agency a company you might say and um 
so anyways, and then he said that he was personally visited by, visited by them as well. So what was the content of uh, these chapters? So one of them was an interview with Alan Greenspan, who was head of the Federal Reserve at the time, which had apparently been converted into like a, a book chapter, this interview. The other one dealt with some other juicy internal drama that apparently had gone on with the Bank of Japan. Well, apparently publishing either of these chapters was um, verboten, not allowed. And uh, Werner had to cede his right to publish them in the first initial edition of the book. So I do not think I have that copy. I think after this, I will try and get my hands on it. I did see, I think it was only available for purchase in the UK. That's another thing. Actually purchasing a copy of Princes of the Yen in, in the United States is exceedingly difficult. It's well over $100 just to get a paperback of a 300-page book. Um, it's very odd. Um, and so that kind of lends more to the theory, too, that this book is kind of being uh, suppressed, let's say. Werner himself um, definitely has um, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He's uh, he's had, like, multiple videos taken down from YouTube. He, and he's not, like, a crazy conspiracy theorist. He's a professor, uh, I, I think, at Columbia. Like, he's, he's an actual guy he's a normal person um he just you know he, he's not afraid to divulge some actually interesting information on credit creation the city of london banking system japan so forth um so anyways i don't think that Werner contends it was like a spook plot i think that he mostly attributes it to just an ongoing sort of cultural relationship between members of the bank of japan and their sincere beliefs, maybe egotistical, and uh, certain members of the American financial sector, American academia, they had become kind of infatuated with. I think that that's kind of the crux of his theory on how this, uh, and, and obviously political pressure. I, I think that's plausible. The trade imbalances was probably a big political pressure, and the Bank of Japan felt like they needed to, because as I was kind of making the point, by the 70s, when the political pressure on trade imbalances comes to the forefront, the Bank of Japan is running the fucking economy. Yeah. Like, of course, they're going to be the ones to institute the, the machinations because by that stage, they're running the show. Like, it's, it is them. And they've made it very clear, probably to the Americans, that you know, if you want to change Japan's economy, you have to go through us. I think another thing he points out that I think is interesting that I think does veer into the somewhat conspiracy uh, world that I don't have any problem with, but unfortunately uh, from another agency out there that tried to discredit the whole notion and coining the term conspiracy theory doesn't have the best reputation, but I think it's fine. It's certainly valid to like look at centers of power and coordination that the Japanese uh, did have a linkage between the Bank of Japan and the government and people of Japan, as opposed to this constant push from places like the IMF and uh, other banking uh, powers in the world to have independent central banks. Now, what does that mean? I mean, on the surface, it means that those banks don't have 
direct accountability to the people. I I heard a recent Z-Man podcast uh, where he actually talked about independent judiciaries uh, as being sort of a, a ridiculous notion. I think it's somewhat analogous in this case that why would you want an independent central bank? Like, you, shouldn't you have them representing the people? Uh, why should it be independent? And I think uh, this, I, I'm not going to say Werner is, is going this far, but I will. I think there is an international connected to money uh, cabal uh, in this world that wants to have influence over the central banks, especially because they can influence the direction of those countries for good or for bad uh, and punish them if they're going outside of the the objectives of this group. Uh, and I think the well, IMF is sort of the, the shock troop that is, is sort of most obvious, but I think the Rothschild family operates in a similar way behind the scenes with having, and historically this is exactly what they did, they would lend money to both sides of these competing countries in, in Europe uh, fighting these wars, get them both into debt and then control them and own them. And I think this is uh, an old practice and having these independent banks is basically a way to get uh, them independent of the people and so that they can't compete against these international banking groups. Well, and I think that there's an, uh, when your, when your central bank goes independent, a lot of funny things happen. Number one, Generally, your stock market um, becomes a larger and larger and more preponderous Because of a casino. Well, it becomes the more preponderous source of your corporate financing and your savings growth, your net wealth growth, kind of comes from the stock market. And that generally is because when you open up the central bank, a lot of other things are generally going on at the same time. And normally there's a liberalization of the capital markets. Well, when that happens, lots of speculation, lots of capital transfer flows, lots of foreign exchange markets, suddenly lots of indexes gets created. Suddenly lots of people make, uh, I'm sorry, not many people make lots of money. And a few people be, make a, few a lot of money. Make, make a lot of money. And so that seems to be, again and again, why you need an independent central bank. Well, the international financial concerns are at stake here. And I think that generally, too, when your central bank goes independent, you're able to then ideologically influence it the way the Bank of Japan was ideologically influenced. And it's less likely to be ideologically influenced by the current government of the country and thus it is more amenable to someone else rather than more amenable to the government and one day maybe the government is on the bad side of many global interests well having the central bank not be working with the government certainly impacts very adversely that government's ability to stand on its own um, you see this a lot with the ECB in Europe. And Werner's talked endlessly about the ECB. I think it's, uh, I'm waiting for him to write Princes of the Yen, volume two, except it's about uh, the European Central Bank. 
And I guess uh, it would be, uh, I don't know, barons of the euro. Yeah, he's like very critical of the European yes, Central Bank yes. because despite, and according to him, despite what the popular notion of it being modeled after the Bundesbank, the German Central Bank, which did have parliamentary accountability to the people, uh, this bank, even though it's based in Frankfurt, has no accountability to the people at all. It can do whatever it wants. And now you have the euro crisis, uh, year 11 or whatever we're on now, uh, just dragging on the the countries that are in the eurozone cannot really uh, break free of it uh, unless they create their own currency and go through a hell of a lot of economic pain and to transition to that and then be sanctioned probably by the European Central Bank and the rest of the uh, countries under their purview. So it, well, it's a very powerful of- uh, supranational organization that doesn't have a connection to the, the people very very much anymore. Yeah, and I think part of his argument has been that it is, um, uh, from from a more financial and technical standpoint, number one, and the Bank of Japan certainly did this later on and still does this to an extent today, uh, but the ECB um, has created a untenable and unsustainable situation, in his view, purposefully. And... A large part of that comes from their propping up of dozens of European financial and insurance companies uh, that are basically at zombie status. They have way too much debt. They're over leveraged. They don't operate anymore. They're losing accounts. But they're too systematically important to the European financial system because – because and these are mostly commercial banks and financial services companies, insurance companies – the Europeans, even though they've been getting more accustomed to having the stock market as their preponderant source of company and bond financing, are still very reliant on their banking system. The Germans are very reliant on their banking system. The French are extremely reliant on their banking system, the Italians and so forth. And uh, the European Central Bank has behaved in such a way with certain capital outflows to these banks propping them up despite their inevitability of failure and that now the entire EU system, the entire system under the ECB is now completely unable to leave and is completely unable to restructure their banking assets because when the ECB comes in, and provide support to these institutions, there's certain contingencies and there's certain requirements. Often these requirements are not in the best interests of these countries. Often they hamper economic growth because these countries are reliant on these financial institutions uh, far more so than Americans are for their financial institutions for day-to-day business activity, day-to-day life. And so the his opinions of the ECB have mostly, I think, been that They've purposefully created an immense amount of tail risk and that if anything large and systematic happens to the European financial system, only they can figure it out and only they could actually bail out um, the entire system because under their watch, they've purposefully intermingled different kinds of financial service uh, industry companies, insurance companies and banking companies and so forth. Uh, across borders, across countries, with very different economies. To you know, and the idea that we're we're gonna we're gonna diffuse risk, we're gonna stabilize risk. But what they've actually done is set up an entire system to fail, and that's really been his criticism of the ECB. I think wrapped in a nutshell. And 
maybe one day he'll he'll write the next book on it. Um, uh, but kind of going into that as well. Um, so when I was going back to your earlier point about how the uh, you know the Bank of Japan kind of creates this crisis in the '70s, and then they're able to wave the magic hand and misdirect blame. Um, so here's a passage. When real GDP growth after 20 years of almost continuous double-digit growth suddenly contracted, it did not fail to trigger a lot of soul-searching. Many observers were puzzled about the relatively long and sharp downturn and began to see the Japanese economic structure as the main culprit. Indeed, in times of serious crisis, the system, whatever its form, is likely to be blamed for the crisis and voices are likely to call for significant changes. This slump spawned many studies and think tanks, including at MIDI which concluded that Japan would not be able to maintain the previous high economic growth rates based on its export orientation. Instead, it would have to revamp. But we just kind of, for all of our tangents, we talked about how the economy had already rebounded mostly. And this crisis, by the way, had been effectively created by the Bank of Japan by oversaturating the credit supply. So, you know, what's what's the issue here? Like you create a problem and then you say, well, the problem is something else. It's not was not actually the problem. Sort of this uh, strange machination. Uh, structural problems suddenly seemed a burning issue. There were a number of depressed industries whose era were, seemed to have ended. Shipping, petrochemicals, electric blast furnaces, soda, cardboard, and sugar refining. Mitty advised that these be transferred overseas into other parts of Asia. It recommended that Japan Japan become a headquarters nation, overseeing factories in many countries. The domestic economy needed to move up the ladder to a higher value-added sector. Moreover, with the fiscal situation becoming critical, Japan's demographic problem was highlighted. Things looked bleak. Uh, So here you kind of have the globalist influence, I guess, the economist influence being exerted at MIDI. Oh, you're all getting too old. You're not having enough children. Oh, you need to move your factories overseas. Oh, you need to go into value-added economy. And this is the same logic. This is the same ideological trap that is deployed against the United States, against Europeans, against Canada, against even South Americans, and now the Japanese. And it's the same tactic over and over and over again. Financial elites create a bubble. They purposefully create situations where the host country is at a disadvantage, whether it's in trade imbalances, they create financial speculatory bubbles, too much credit, whatever it is, they purposefully crash the system or they allow it to crash and they say, actually, the old system that we broke was the problem to begin with, not necessarily the things we were doing. And then they demand reform that will increase their wealth. I think that this this kind of same thing played out in the savings and loan crisis and then the introduction of NAFTA and then the manufacturing decline in the United States. Well, I, I think uh, I think all of this is, is true. What I do want to point out, though, and I one of my skepticisms of professional economists, uh, especially of financial economists, is that they view much of the world through the lens of finance, which is fine. I mean, that's their perspective, and I appreciate their perspective because I don't really view the world from that perspective uh, for most of my, my day. 
But I don't think it's the only perspective. I think it it misses out on a lot of, frankly, just more obvious things that explain a country's competitiveness, not just monetary policy, but also relative uh, labor uh, and wage rates uh, competitively. Uh, If you look at what has caused a lot of the offshoring in the United States and later in Japan, and even now in China, believe it or not, uh, has been just the the relative increase in the workers' uh, hourly wage. Uh, they used to in in China make something like you know a dollar uh, a week compared to workers in America that are making you know fifteen an hour, but now it's it's much more comparable, and so they're actually looking at at moving their factories to other countries that are cheaper. Same thing happened in Japan, uh, and when they implemented uh, NAFTA. Uh, that moved a lot to Mexico, and then later uh, the WTO. Uh, so NAFTA was early 90s when Clinton got in. It was a Bush senior program, by the way, but it got passed under Clinton uh, around 92 or 3, uh, probably 93. Uh, a lot of the Machidora factories in Mexico were set up by American companies looking to decrease their, their costs, and that cost a lot of American workers jobs. Uh, but by 2000, the end of Clinton's administration, the WTO admitted uh, China into the world trading system with the understanding that they would allow in foreign imports to offset the exports that they were going to have. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What did they do? They basically ran massive trade surpluses, even bigger than uh, in Japan, and now they're arguably the world's largest economy, if, if, if uh, only the second largest. Uh, and they, um, they were able to do that because they had a very low labor rate and also a disciplined and, and intelligent workforce. Uh, but I think what happened in Japan really was that they had experienced a similar thing after the war where they were relatively inexpensive and able to sell products at a low price at a higher quality than the competitors overseas. And they were allowed into these markets because of uh, foreign policy, like the state departments wanting to have this umbrella empire, including these allies against the Soviet union. Uh, they were able to access those markets, whereas they couldn't before. And they were able to outcompete because they were working at a higher level uh, and at, at a lower rate. And eventually though, their wages went up to the point where they couldn't do that anymore. And I think if you look at, what happened in the 90s when the Americans were actually starting to lower their own costs by, frankly, just shifting things to Mexico. If you look at cars, by the way, if you if you have a car that was built in the late 90s and you, if you tear it apart, you'll notice a lot of the components are suddenly saying made in Mexico. What the Americans were doing was they were they were jacking their own workers up by shifting it over to cheaper places. And I think that actually created a competitive disadvantage to Japan. So I think trade policy has a lot to do with uh, the country's overall economic performance. It's not just monetary policy. Monetary policy, sure, it creates bubbles or it doesn't or it allocates resources for sure, but it's not the only thing. I, I And I always have this problem when you listen to these economists talk that they, they seem to think it's all about finance. It it just isn't. I it, In my opinion, and for all the evidence I've just laid out, I, I think it's fairly obvious it isn't just that. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, well, kind of continuing on this period, um, in, in the late 1970s, leading economists and public figures felt that Japan is at an important crossroads now. 
And that's always a sign that you're <laughs> you're actually in someone's crosshairs. If you, someone writes an article saying you're at a crossroads now, I feel like every five years the Economist picks some country to attack, and they're always like, Indonesia is at a crossroads, or Uzbekistan is at a crossroads, or Belarus is at a crossroads, and it's always like, yes, it's you're at a crossroads, and here's the one road that you should actually take, which is open your economy, open your country, have gay pride parades, whatever. So, um, anyway, so important crossroads now, and the quote: "The time has come for a basic re-examination of public choices." The so-called U.S.-Japan Wise Men's Group reported in 1981 that there was a need for Japan to make much greater efforts to open its domestic markets to the inflow of goods, services, and capital to a degree equal to that of the United States. Um, thanks to this crisis, serious criticism of the bureaucracy, including the hit hereto all-powerful and almost untouchable Ministry of Finance, was heard in public for the first time in the post-war era. More and more observers argue that the Japanese tradition of a, quote, strong nationalist bureaucracy was now an obstacle. Even former bureaucrats called for a deregulation, administrative reforms, and the reduction of the size of the bureaucracy. As I kind of highlighted in the beginning, bureaucracy is a holdover from the empire. Like, these guys are pretty based. <laughs> These guys were, most of them, even like the senior level ones were definitely around to help manage pieces of the imperial Japanese bureaucracy. And they are true die-in-the-wool committed men of Japan. And they are definitely trying to keep the economic system flowing well, keep people employed and keep life good in Japan um, and keep it keep foreigners out of the domestic market as much as possible. They These guys were pretty pretty good for bureaucrats and you know you can tell like when they when bureaucrats actually come under fire which is rare generally it's because they might have actually done something right and the system is trying to get them out of the way and he kind of he writes about um these two um academics uh noguchi and sakikibara um and he says, uh, they were the first and only public figures to clearly identify and acknowledge the true nature of Japan's economic system. They called it the, quote, wartime system for total economic mobilization. Um, and uh, Sakakibara, 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 these Japanese surnames are a little tough sometimes. Um, he actually became vice minister of finance in the, in the late 90s, but in the late 70s, he was writing about uh, the actual nature of the economy. And uh, he, you know, they pointed out kind of Werner's thesis that uh, Japan, the Japanese economy was a real market-oriented economy in the 20s. The bureaucrats and the war system had kind of wrestled it away and had created this industrial magnet system. Um, they said this system couldn't continue to function within the current international environment. To them, the slump of the mid-1970s seemed evidence that the wartime system was on the point of collapse. Uh, from our standpoint, the wartime system for total mobilization of economic resources is at last coming to an end, and from now on we must grapple with the real task of post-war reconstruction. Not considering the possibility of a reform that might preserve some of the obvious advantages of the system, 
They instead called for fundamental transformation of Japan's economic, social, and political system in the image of the United States. The reality was that this system was far too successful to be abandoned easily, though. It had created many beneficiaries, business groups, powerful bureaucrats, intermediary politicians, but also including the majority of the Japanese population, whose living standards had steadily risen. In the end, the deep shock of the 70s was not enough, not big enough to be able to say goodbye to the war economy. Naguchi, therefore, had to repeat his, quote, farewell to the war economy near tw- nearly 20 years later. The bank leaders of the Bank of Japan took note. They knew that the Bank of Japan was the only player that could create a recovery. The Ministry of Finance's policies to boost the economy were aimed at lowering the discount rate or fiscal stimulation. Neither could work so long as the Bank of Japan did not expand credit creation. By the the late 1970s, the BOJ's smokescreen concerning credit controls had been operating for a decade, and few observers, even at the MOF, were aware of the real root cause and the crucial role of window guidance. Neoclassical economics was beginning to make inroads in Japan, and the economic sections of the BOJ churned out papers showing that interest rates were key to the monetary policy tool. Further, the BOJ semi-officially followed monetarism. Hence, the BOJ's role remained obscured. The public blamed the Ministry of Finance and the economic structure for the crisis. Visible elites can stay in power only as long as they deliver the goods, while Japan's economy was expanding at double-digit growth rates. People did not mind the strong grip on power by the government. Whether by accident or not, the decision makers at the Bank of Japan had won their second battle against the Ministry of Finance. When the BOJ finally let the economy recover in 1976, MOF was still licking its wounds. It cannot be denied that the Bank of Japan had gained valuable experience in the mechanics of the creation and propagation of a real estate-based credit boom and the collapse that must follow. So this kind of just furthers Werner's thesis, I think, that uh, by the 70s, the Bank of Japan was so in control of credit creation, they could purposefully limit credit creation when things were bad to expand the route of uh, industrialist collapse. And if you don't have a strong credit influx, your industrial system is just going to completely fall apart. It's just kind of how it works. And... Um, they purposefully did it, I think, in his mind, uh, specifically because they wanted to reform the economy and because there was obviously external international pressure to reform the economy, to get Japan out of the war idea and into the post-war idea. So, you know, with all this going on, eventually we kind of hit the uh, the hustle and bustle of the 80s and um, kind of when... Japanese financial deregulation comes into effect. And uh, so from the mid-80s until the end of the decade, Japanese foreign investment dominated international capital flow, but Japan became a net importer of credit. Over 40 years after defeat in the Pacific War, Japan seemed to hold the key to international monetary flow. The global phenomenon of international capital flows was first and foremost a Japanese phenomenon. Um, and so this is really into the 80s. We have absolute insane monetization of existing credit and then in a continuing expansion 
of the credit supply. And the Bank of Japan is now basically has the capability to buy government bonds, to play around with the value of the yen any given day. And the amount of yen just swamping the world and the amount of foreign reserves, uh, foreign exchange reserves that the Japanese have, numbering in the hundreds of billions of dollars, which in the 80s was insane, um, kind of allows them to go on a real estate bubble, a uh, speculatory bubble, an insurance bubble, property investment bubble, like all of it. Uh, and so... Uh, he uh, he notes um, uh, in 1986 they had a long-term capital flow capital outflow of 132 billion dollars. In 1987, another record was set when it went up to 137, followed by the outflows of 131 billion the following year. The money began to reshape the world in Japan's image, outbidding or swallowing rivals. Japanese money bought financial and real estate assets all over the world. Japanese factories opened in greenfield sites in Scotland, Wales, and Northern England. Japanese cars were manufactured in the Midwest of the U.S. Icons of business prowess, Rockefeller Center, Columbia Pictures, and even Pebble Beach Golf Course fell into Japanese hands. Japanese restaurants and hotels sprang up around the world's major cities to Japan's corporate raiders. Hawaiian real estate came to be dominated by the Japanese investors. The same happened in California, Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia. So the late 80s was really the era of Japan. And you can think of it in a way of all of the hard-toiled work from the pre-empire, the empire, the post-war – all of it, all that credit, all that hard work, all that stored value from the Japanese was now being just exploded onto the planet, onto the global investment scene. Um, and it certainly reached even into the global stock markets. It released, it went into financial assets. The Japanese, anyone who's familiar with like 80s Wall Street uh, history or just technicals, there wasn't a day that anyone on Wall Street worth their salt didn't have some kind of interaction with the Japanese. It was impossible not to have some kind of interaction with the Japanese uh, on some level in the 80s. And um, he, uh, he kind of goes on. So though Japanese foreign direct investment reached historic proportions until the late 80s, they made up only a small part of the long-term outflows, the greatest part being due to portfolio investments and uh, the remarkable developments could not fail to leave a strong impact on international securities markets. In the eight, ni 1980s, international bond markets had become unthinkable without the ubiquitous Japanese presence. At their peak in 86, 77% of total net portfolio outflows were directed into bonds, the rest into foreign stocks and shares. Almost 90% of investment in foreign securities was U.S. Treasury bonds. So this is... Uh, very interesting in that the United States is basically receiving huge amounts of investment all of a sudden from the Bank of Japan after they kind of got what they wanted out of Japan. The U.S. Uh, sees a lot of investment coming in. And I think that in a lot of ways, the maybe the internal politicking behind the scenes could have been that this was a quid pro quo. You know, OK, well, we gave you what you want. You give us what you know what I want. You you hit it. We kind of let you get away with trade imbalances for decades, but now you need to 
reinvest in our municipal governments. You need to reinvest factories in the United States. You need to train up our workers. You know, and there needs to be give and take. And that kind of you kind of see that happening here. The Japanese, having spent so long, kind of being combative with the world, are now gracing the world with an explosion of excess um, excess capital. And um, no one, like, you know, Werner notes that economists couldn't really figure out what this phenomenon really was. They, they thought, okay, uh, the capital controls have been uh, deregulated. And uh, the benchmark changes of the foreign exchange laws were taken away. And so the Japanese just have all this extra money. But not a lot of people realize that it was – Really, the work of the Japanese, the the Bank of Japan, which was creating this extra credit, which was incentivizing banks to go outward, to invest more heavily, to take risky loans, to take their excess profits, not reinvest them, but expand into speculatory behavior, to make a certain amount of money rather than make a certain amount of loans. And so many of the economists in the world just got it wrong. Because they didn't know the internal politics of the Bank of Japan. They weren't studying the Japanese banking system. They just assumed that, oh, well, the Japanese have all this money. They got rid of some laws. They deregulated a little. And boom, there's a lot of prosperity. And this kind of fit with the ideological tenor of economics at the time, which is that if you deregulate, you get a big surge of money. And that kind of fit with Reagan, that fit a lot with Thatcherites, that fit a lot with what was going on in parts of Europe, certainly Southeast Asia. And, you know, sort of the end of communism was very clear. And everyone thought if you deregulate, you can expand the credit supply very easily. And there's nothing more complex about it. Um, so they failed to explain them and were even more helpless in explaining the events of the 1990s. In 1991, as the Japanese current account was heading for a new record surplus, toppling $90 billion, net long-term capital outflows had suddenly vanished. Japan recorded $40 billion worth of net inflows, the first in more than a decade. Japanese investors became net sellers of foreign securities. Japan remained a net seller of foreign assets throughout 91. From manufacturers to banks and real estate. Some of that was the Gulf War causing oil prices to spike. But but from manufacturers to banks and real estate firms, Japanese money was suddenly retreating on all fronts. With increasing losses on their foreign investments, it became apparent even to the last believers in the profit motive that Japanese corporations, and in particular the company's financial institutions, had not invested for profits. They were hardly any profits. As it turns out, even giants had not bothered to conduct cash flow analyses and profit projections about their numerous foreign acquisitions. Researchers struggled to explain the puzzling aberration of a record current account surplus accompanied by a sizable long-term capital account surplus. Standard analyses failed to provide an explanation of the extraordinary movements of Japanese foreign investment in the 80s and 90s. This gap in economic understanding of the world could be excused if it had concerned the capital account behavior of, for instance, Liechtenstein. But the lack of understanding of the determinants of capital movements of the biggest capital exporter in history, whose money has directly affected companies, governments, and lives in many countries all over the world over a period of more than a decade, should not be excused easily. And Werner is kind of getting at this um, point here in that 
everyone got it wrong, or a lot of people got it wrong. And there are a lot of economists, financial analysts, who had a duty to study this more effectively, to actually do the research, to do the real work. And they weren't. They totally missed it. And in fact, many of them were cheerleading this, not understanding what they were cheerleading. And I think that Werner himself, investing his own time and energy into actually effectively understanding what was going on um, and being sort of the source of truth in many ways for this period of time, more so than anyone else. Um, I think he deserves a lot of credit for it because he, you know, there is footage of him in the 80s saying this is a big problem and going on television trying and writing papers trying to warn people about the what the Bank of Japan was up to, trying to warn people about the the risk of speculative property investment and the risk of Japanese investment into foreign securities. Uh, no one really wanted to listen to him because it was doom and gloom. But he was the only one who kind of really saw what was coming because he actually spent the time to, to, to understand it a little bit. And so uh, as we kind of go on here, eventually Japan sort of enters this, uh, this banking crisis. And um, it, it's hard to explain. Uh, the seeds of the crisis kind of become these asset bubbles that get blown out. And um, uh, there's actually a, a, a separate paper from the Bank of International Settlements on this topic that I thought was did a good job of explaining it a little bit more succinctly than Werner. Um, when the gap between competitive pressures in the financial markets and a convoy style of banking supervision and regulation that, in effect, ensure the viability of the weakest banks becomes unsustainable, unsustainable, the crisis erupted. In this regard, it might be argued that the crisis was accentuated by the formation and bursting of the bubble. And um, basically what that means is that the Bank of Japan uh, got into this situation where they had to try and backstop every single bank in the country. That was sort of their mandate at that stage. And many of these banks, many of these companies were now basically defaulting and they had to backstop them all at an equal level. And so they just, they couldn't. So many of them just went out of business all of a sudden. And this caused a lot of financial assets to basically go under. And this had a chain effect. And suddenly many companies, many banks are no longer able to lend. And that is, uh, that's kind of the problem. So up to March 2000, 110 Deposit-taking institutions were dissolved under the deposit insurance system. The total amount spent in dealing with the non-performing loans from 92 to 2000 was 86 trillion yen, or 17% of their GDP, which included charge-off and provisioning. Uh, the financial crisis in the 90s in Japan was indeed an unprecedented in terms of seriousness, um, and they go on to say, kind of what Werner says, Japan had experienced no major bank failures in the post-war period. Banks were heavily regulated, and this was not really uh, – no one really thought that you could have a banking crisis in Japan. Um, but they kind of identify, along with Werner, that uh, no one was really complaining. And you know, he says, companies didn't mind if experts could not explain asset prices. It was free money. 
They ran to the punch bowl while the party lasted. Firms borrowed money and invested, or they issued new stock or corporate bonds. Little of that was invested productively. Most went straight back into stocks or real estate. With asset prices rising, even staid manufacturers could not resist the temptation to try their hand at playing the markets. They initially entrusted substantial sums to their stockbrokers who had set up so-called token accounts in which they engaged in discretionary speculative investments. Soon they expanded their finance and treasury divisions to handle the speculation themselves. Uh, the increased sophistication of financial markets had delivered the wonders of Zytec. Many firms felt there was no time to ask questions, time was money, so they joined in setting up Zytec operations. Subsidiaries devoted to full-time speculation. Firms set up real estate subsidiaries. Banks set up non-bank from financial firms to lend to real estate firms. And individual mortgage their land to get into the game. And all were buying more land and more stocks. This kind of system is insane on some level, but I think that no one really thought it could go bad because there had never been a crisis in Japanese economy of any real magnitude. And on top of that, the Bank of Japan was saying that we were going to backstop everything. And Japan had so many well-performing industries that I think at the macroeconomic level, many of the analysis, and Werner kind of touches on this at the time, was that, well, if anything happens, Japan can always kind of cycle back to doing what they do best, which is just engage in industrial management. Um, but well into the 80s and 90s, they were beginning to do what they had been recommended to do by all those neoclassical institutions, which was strip the industry, get out of the industrial game, export it overseas, sell it off, dissolve it, whatever. And so when this crisis hit, there was a huge bout in unemployment because the Japanese economic system had abandoned and allowed many of their industrial institutions to go to squalor. And so there was no job market to fall back on. There was no productive economy uh, to fall back on. And eventually a lot of these banks just sort of became compounded with bad debt because they created a bubble and they just had too much compound interest. They couldn't repay the principal anymore. There was just too much debt, too much illiquid debt in the system. And so many companies start to go under and there's a credit crunch. And so what does Mr. Mieno, who's now head of the Bank of Japan, do? Well, Mieno effectively says, um, I'm going to reduce the credit supply even further. Even though everyone in their right mind was telling him you need to engage in uh, some kind of growth. You need to grow the credit supply slightly because it's contracting. And if you want to try and get the productive economy working again to stave off a cascade effects of bad debts, of a liquid bad debt, uh, you need to expand the credit supply and monetize it. Well, he didn't do that. And so suddenly you see the real stab in the back here. And Werner calls this part how to prolong a recession. Um, and he says, by mid 1995, Japan's recession had already lasted far longer than most economists had predicted. Analysts and investors who had been holding out for a full-blown recovery 
uh, became gloomy. The yen had risen to about 80 yen a dollar, unthinkable for many just a half year earlier. Exporters were under pressure, demanding the economy faltered, production growth slowed, investment inventories built up, and firms cut costs. Increased competition and deregulation put further deflationary pressure on the economy. Uh, price destruction made consumers postpone purchases as the layoffs pushed up unemployment to a new post-war high. Meanwhile, the banking system was weighed down by bad debts. Uh, and so the economy kind of comes back brand, yeah, very suddenly in 1996. And then it slumps again in 97 and 98, and the, the yen just totally collapses in value. It goes to 147 yen to a dollar in, uh, in 98, and it was like an 80% drop from three years prior. Um, and the economy kind of takes another rise again in 99. And the stock market in Tokyo goes up, but the stock market peaked in the first quarter of 2000, and then the economy slumped again, and the market slumped again. And then by early 2002, most commentators had given up um, any idea of a recovery. Well, just just to put this in perspective, the yeah. Nikkei peaked uh, at around 40,000, somewhere around 1990, 91. And by 1999, I think it had fallen to something like 8,000. I mean, it's it yeah. fallen 80%. It was, it was pretty hard uh, of a drop. Yeah. So um, he, he kind of goes into the theories on how they could have effectively fixed this. And he says, well, who is the perpetrator? <laughs> uh, and he says, since 91, the government, the ministry of finance have been trying to boost the economy by using interest rates. The Bank of Japan lowered the official discount rate 10 times in the 90s, beginning with the first reduction in 91. Uh, prior to 93, it was lowered seven times, reaching a historical low of 1.75%. Then it was lowered to 1.1% in 95, 0.5% in late 95, October 95. The uncollateralized overnight call rate, the target operation rate, was guided below the ODR for the first time at 0.47%. Three years later, it was at 0.33%. Uh, then it fell to 0.1%. Now it's at basically permanent zero interest rate policy and or near zero interest rate policy. And so uh, this kind of goes back to what he was saying and that the, the Bank of Japan had been inundated with this monetarist notion of the importance of interest rates and not just, you know, creation of capital efficiently allocating capital choosing who to give it to and trying to effectively manage your economy at, at, with a strategic vision in mind so just tuning interest rates to spur consumption which is what they're trying to do and they had fallen into this trap and instead of uh, trying to spurn the economy with real investment, spurn it with real credit creation. They just kept defaulting back to interest rate manipulation. And he says, if both the monetarists and the Keynesian prescriptions did not work, many economists thought, what was there left to do? They started to listen to those voices that argued that the recession was due to Japan's economic system, that the only way out was to introduce deep structural changes, such as deregulation and opening of markets. By 98, a broad consensus had emerged in favor of historic structural transformation. 
business leaders, politicians, and surprisingly, even members of the bureaucracy argued for change. Such a conclusion was very tempting, especially as the U.S. economy went from strength to strength during the 90s. Um, And so, again, the operators at the system cause a problem and then blame the system for the problem and then demand further changes that benefit them and their friends abroad to try and resurrect the system. Um, And they even try to blame like U.S. banks at some point, although that doesn't really take off. And so the, the... the internal discussion in Japan basically becomes around, well, we need to get rid of the Ministry of Finance. We need to have the, the central bank be independent. And, um, of course, you see where this is going. And eventually, um, Werner kind of argues that uh, well, the Bank of Japan could – for instance, go out and purchase the house of Mr. Harada. It could entice him to sell by offering a price above the market rate. That would not be a problem for the Bank of Japan because it could print the money or more precisely create new purchasing power that previously did not exist. It does not matter to Mr. Harada whether he gets the money in the form of paper currency or BOJ transfer to his bank. Harada now has more purchasing power available. And so Werner basically advocates uh, for at the time he was advocating for this, and this is also in his post facto, is is as well. They were purposefully extending a credit crunch. They were purposefully halting credit allocation. They were not, and then even during the crisis, they were not distributing it to effectively the way that they used to with the old window guidance system. And he's basically arguing for them to monetize printed money, and go out and engage in productive activities. You buy someone's house, you turn it into a park. You buy someone's lot, you turn it into a factory and you sell it off to someone in Japan to build something with. You do something, you do something proactive, you do something productive, you stimulate, and instead, uh, nothing. The Bank of Japan did nothing but tune interest rates and kind of sit back and allow for the country to slowly be invested in and for its industries to be bought out and for it to be become more ingratiated with the global financial system. And of course, the coup de grace comes when um, the Bank of Japan is rendered effectively independent from the Ministry of Finance because there's this pressure program that's launched in the media blaming the Ministry of Finance for constraining the Bank of Japan, constraining the economy, um, and that the the Ministry of Finance and all these nationalist bureaucrats needed to be done away with and they needed to open up, open up the economy and we'll be rich like America. And so this was really, uh, you know, kind of the ultimate synthesis to this uh, proposed crisis was then the princes of the end succeeded in that there were kind of long 55, 60 year struggle. By the year 2000, they're effectively independent. And they now, to this day, exert even more control over the Japanese economy and day-to-day life. And they're basically able to utilize interest rates to tune the day-to-day activities of the Japanese economic system and everyone's sort of daily habits. Um, And so I think that ultimately Princes of the Yen kind of goes through a lot of Japanese history. And I highly recommend everyone read it. There's lots of great details Things I probably missed or didn't cover enough, but um, 
I do recommend you read it because it is a fascinating insight into how your country, despite how well it's doing, can be undone by outsiders and by people within with ulterior motives. And that if you don't kind of keep track of your financial institutions, if you don't keep track of your politicians, of your bureaucrats, if you don't try and pay attention to these machinations, one day, maybe you don't wake up, but your kids wake up in a very radically different country that doesn't offer the kind of opportunities uh, that it used to.